Hello and welcome to the No Nonsense Anti-Racism Podcast. I'm your host, Nara Yunus. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is episode two. We're going to discuss vocabulary that is used in anti-racism discussions and conversations. You may have heard a number of terms and don't really understand what they mean, what they're referring to, and so that is what we are going to be discussing today. These definitions came from an array of places, dictionaries, articles, books, sociologists, nonprofits, and research centers, all of which are referenced in the show notes. So please feel free to take a look, share them out widely. I know I can't keep you on this podcast for hours and hours and hours, although I'd like to think that you wouldn't mind listening to my voice for hours. Um, I'm not going to take that as a given, though. And so I know that I can't go into and discuss all of the terms that are used in anti-racism vernacular and discussion, so I'm going to break down 10 that I find really interesting. And then, of course, hopefully in a future episode, I can go into the additional 10 that I had on this list because I had a long list. Uh, and we'll continue to add to this, uh, maybe I'll call it a dictionary of, of anti-racism terms, and hopefully can post it somewhere so that you can always reference it if you need it. By the way, I'm also going to cheat. <laughs> so it's going to be 10 terms, but I'm going to include three bonus terms. Um, so one is anti-racism, since I it's in my title, I really should break it down. White supremacy, since I mentioned it so much in the introduction, uh, and then systemic racism, which really comes out of the conversation about white supremacy and the definition that I pulled together. Each of these terms could have their own episodes. There's so much more context to them. And as I was doing the research, was just really fascinated and I learned so much myself about where some of these terms came from and how some of these terms are being used in the everyday conversations about race and racism. The first term I'm going to dive into is, maybe no surprise, anti-racism. Anti-anti. Anti-racism is defined as the work of actively opposing racism by advocating for changes in political economic, and social life. Some people say they are non-racist, which means that they are not racist. But the argument for why this isn't good enough a term is because people need to be actively against racism, not just not racist. This is why I talk about it so much and is actually included in the title of the podcast because I wanted to create a resource that was helping to advocate for sustainable, systemic change. Okay, guys, the second term that I use a lot and used a lot of in the first episode is white supremacy. This is an idea or an ideology that white people and their ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions are superior to people of color and their ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and actions. While most people associate white supremacy with extremist groups like the Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazis, white supremacy is ever-present in our institutions and culture. It assigns value, morality, goodness, and humanity to the white group, while casting people and communities of color as worthless, immoral, bad, 
uh, and undeserving, sometimes inhuman. The term white supremacy also refers to a political or socioeconomic system where white people enjoy structural advantage and rights that other racial and ethnic groups do not, both at a collective and individual level. Essentially, white supremacy is more than a group of angry white men chanting racist statements and marching with tiki torches. Lots of people are white supremacists without thinking they are. They may not have the hood, but if you have the ideology, you believe in white supremacy. When we see white people as better, more deserving, more human than non-white people, we build our systems to reflect this, which leads to another bonus term, systemic racism. This is also known as structural racism. White supremacy is embedded in the systems because these systems were built by people with white supremacist mindsets. The systems should be unbiased. They should be free from prejudice. But they're not if the people with the power to make decisions start from a place of bias and then are upheld by others with that same mindset. Let me give you an example of how white supremacist thinking affects one part of our society. Education. If a teacher in a classroom has a white supremacist mindset, they won't treat all students equally. Their bias, whether consciously or subconsciously, affects how they see and treat their students. This is why black students are expelled, suspended, and arrested in school more than white students and other students of color for the exact same behavior. In Canada, we don't collect data on this, but reviews on the effects of the Ontario Safe Schools Act spoke to parents, teachers, and counselors, and confirmed the perception that Black kids were targeted on a much higher basis. In the U.S., although Black boys face higher rates of school discipline than anyone else, a report from Columbia Law School's Center for Intersectionality and Social Policy Studies found that Black girls are six times as likely to be suspended as white girls, while Black boys are three times as likely to be suspended as white boys. Black kids are seen as problems to be managed, while other children are simply kids being kids. Okay, so we've gone through those bonus terms, so let's dive into the other 10 terms. We're going to go in alphabetical order. Number one, ally. Ally is somebody who makes the commitment and effort to recognize their privilege. Their privilege based on gender, class, race, sexual identity, etc. Allies work in solidarity with oppressed groups in the struggle for justice. They understand that it is in their own interest to end all forms of oppression, even those that they may benefit from. Allies commit to reducing their own complicity or collusion in oppression of those groups and invest in strengthening their own knowledge and awareness of oppression. Be on the lookout, though, for people who look like allies, but who are actually doing something harmful called performative allyship. This can cover a wide scope of behaviors, but it's essentially the practice of words, posts, and gestures that do more to promote an individual's own virtuous moral compass than it is actually about helping the cause that they're intending to showcase. In some scenarios, performative allyship takes away or skews the message from the actual activists who are on the ground and doing the sustained, continual work necessary. 
allies are doing the hard work of educating themselves and doing the emotional labor to have conversations with their friends and family about why racism is wrong and how they can be a force for good. I had a great conversation with a friend recently about how and if we should recognize the work that allies are doing. On one side, allies are having really hard conversations with family and friends who are often the hardest people to discuss race and racism with. And on the other side of the conversation was that they should be doing it because it's the right thing and not necessarily because they need to be recognized. So it was a really interesting conversation. I don't know what the answer is, and that can definitely be a future episode, but I can see and I hear how hard some of my friends are working to be allies, and I really appreciate them and the work that they're doing. So from me, I'll say thank you to the allies who are in my life and who have been helping me in so many ways as well. Number two, cancel culture. Cancel culture is a public call for withdrawing from a public figure or a company that's doing something harmful. This usually happens via social media, and it is not a new word or concept. It was popularized in the mid-2010s by none other than Black Twitter. There's a lot of backlash right now against cancel culture, but essentially people feel that it limits their freedom of speech or expression. It should be noted, though, that the people who are saying that it limits their freedom of speech or expression are usually people with privilege to begin with, and they're angry that they're being held accountable for inconsiderate and harmful things that they say. So this is definitely going to be a future episode. It needs tons and tons of time to break down. Is it good? Is it not good? My opinion is that cancel culture is very empowering for people from more marginalized communities to hold people to account for the things that they say. And when they're rooted in racism, sexism, transphobia. So I'm here for it. Number three, colorism. This might be a new term for some of you. Colorism is a form of discrimination based on skin tone. Unlike racial bias, which is usually perpetrated by individuals of one race against another, Colorism is frequently observed among members of the same ethnic or racial group. For example, it's why Fair and Lovely is such a huge skincare brand around the world, and why in many countries their celebrities are light skin only. You'll see this in Jamaica, South Africa, India, and so many more. Colorism is a form of internalized racism. We are taught and rewarded for being closer to whiteness, in behavior, culture, and especially physical appearances. I'll give a personal example too. When I lived in Indonesia a few years ago, every single product has whitening ingredients in it. Everything. Deodorant, soap, face cream, everything. I couldn't buy local products. I was so scared of the whitening chemicals and ingredients in it and didn't want to use it on my skin. Term number four, cultural appropriation. Cultural appropriation is the theft of cultural elements for one's own use, commodification, or profit, including symbols, artwork, language, customs, often without understanding, acknowledging, or respecting the value of the original culture. 
This results from the assumption of a dominant culture's right to take cultural elements from others. An example is when people go to music festivals and wear indigenous headdresses and bindis as costumes for fun, or when fashion brands parade white models in box braids and cornrows. This is taking something from a culture, not acknowledging properly where it came from, and usually commodifying it, so selling selling it, making money off of it, uh, without some of this going back to the communities it actually belongs to. And trust me, I know this, like many of the other terms I'm talking about, are super loaded. People don't always agree about what's being appropriated and what is not. I will go into all of this in an episode. It needs a lot more time than just this two-minute description. So trust me, I'm here. I will talk about it for sure. Term number five, intersectionality. Intersectionality is a prism to see the interactive effects of various forms of discrimination and disempowerment. Someone who identifies as black and a lesbian encounters different kinds of discrimination than someone who is cisgendered. Cisgendered, by the way, means someone who identifies as the gender assigned at birth. It means that significant numbers of people in our communities aren't being served by social justice frameworks because they don't address the particular ways that they're experiencing discrimination. It looks at the way that racism, many times, interacts with patriarchy, heterosexism, classism, and xenophobia, seeing that the overlapping vulnerabilities created by these systems actually create specific kinds of challenges for people within these demographics. People from the same race are not a homogenous group. We shouldn't be painted with the same brush of racism or anti-racism, so solutions for some may not be appropriate solutions for others or everybody, and so intersectionality ensures that these unique perspectives are considered and addressed. We are going to take a very short break and we'll be right back. Hey, did you know if you're a community organization that would like to share events or updates, feel free to reach out for a mention here on the podcast or on Instagram. Number six, microaggressions. Microaggressions are the everyday verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights, snubs, or insults, whether intentional or not, which communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative messages to target persons based solely upon their marginalized group membership. People can experience many of these on a regular, daily basis. I'll give you some examples of what some of these slights, snubs, or insults are and how I've experienced them as a black woman uh, on a regular basis. Some things I've heard, for example, are, oh, you're the whitest black person I know. Or, wow, you sound really educated. Sometimes it's strangers feeling entitled to touch my hair without asking. Sometimes it's being followed in stores while I'm shopping or being mistaken for another person of color or woman of color in the office. Microaggressions are harmful, mentally, and more and more research is confirming the harm that microaggressions have 
on people physically via stress and anxiety that they feel on a constant and daily basis. Microaggressions are also in contrast to macroaggressions. Macroaggressions are large-scale or overt aggression towards those of another race, culture, and gender, so physical violence, um, intimidation, macroaggression is what we often see as the like really clear examples of hatred and discrimination, but microaggressions are those daily smaller things that we don't always see, we don't always know we're doing it, but are harmful towards people of color as well. Number seven, model minority. Model minority is a term that was created by a sociologist named William Peterson, and he came up with this term to describe the Japanese community whom he saw as being able to overcome oppression because of their cultural values. While individuals employing the model minority trope may think that they're being complimentary, they are not. This term is related to colorism and has its roots in anti-blackness. The model minority myth creates an understanding of ethnic groups, including Asian Americans, as a monolith or a mass whose parts cannot be distinguished from each other. The model minority myth can be understood as a tool that white supremacy uses to pit people of color against each other in order to protect its status. It may act like Asian Americans or Asian Canadians are a better, more respectable race than those who are closer to blackness. The idea here is that there is a hierarchy of races, with the white at the top and then certain model minorities, so certain examples of races that are closer to the respectability of the white race, and so there is a natural order or hierarchy. Number eight, privilege. Privilege is an unearned social power accorded by the formal and informal institutions of society to all members of a dominant group, for example, white privilege or male privilege. Privilege is usually invisible to those who have it because we're taught not to see it, but nevertheless, it puts us at an advantage over those who do not have it. I will say that privilege is where I often hear people talk about how they don't want to feel guilty for their privilege which is what turns them back from real self-awareness in the first place, because they get defensive about the topic and choose not to engage. You don't need to feel guilty for your privilege. No one's asking you to feel terrible for something that you can't control. You didn't ask to be born into a specific race or sexuality or disability, but understanding how the system benefits you over others and doing your part to right a historic and systemic wrong is your choice. I don't feel guilty for not living with a disability, but it doesn't mean that I shouldn't advocate to ensure spaces accommodate and include those groups when I have the privilege and power to do so. Does that make sense? Don't just say, oh, poor me, because I'm a straight white man and I have more privilege than others. Do something to ensure that you are empowering those with less privilege. One more quick thing I'll say about privilege is that privilege is really contextual. So I'm a black woman in Canada, and although I don't have a lot of racial privilege here in Canada, when I travel to a country where people look like me, 
I have a lot of privilege because I speak English, I have a Canadian passport, uh, I'm educated, so it's very contextual. One more, <laughs> last thing about privilege, but it should be noted that privilege isn't just your interpretation of the kind of benefits that you get in society because of your race, religion, sexual identity, gender, etc. Privilege is something that is put on you. So privilege is largely determined by people's perception of you. I might think that I have a lot of privilege as a black Muslim woman, but when people look at me, how they perceive me will largely determine how they treat me. So you may hear a lot of people say, well, just because I'm a straight white man doesn't mean that I have a lot of privilege. I hope no straight white men are out there being like, oh, Nora's really picking on me today. Even if you are a straight white man, just looking at you, people might not know that you come from a really poor background, that you've experienced a lot of trauma, whatever else it is, but you will still be treated differently based on someone's stereotypes and perceptions of you based on how you appear to them. So you appear as a tall white man. You may have had a difficult background and upbringing, but you may have doors open up for you that other people will not have because of the stereotypes, bias, unconscious or not, that people have about different people. And yes, sometimes people will look at you and associate negative things to you, but because of white supremacy, because of systemic racism, you will largely be benefited in ways that people of color will not be. Number nine. Race. Race is the idea that the human species is divided into distinct groups on the basis of inherited physical and behavioral differences. Race is a made-up social construct and not an actual biological fact. We know this. Racial categories or designations have changed over time and are enforced in different ways over time. For example, the racial designation of Asian American and Pacific Islanders changed four times in the 19th century. That is, they are defined at different times as white and at other times as non-white. It isn't just people who we consider people of color now, like Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. It also includes people who nowadays fit into this definition of white. At one point, Italians, Irish, and Jewish people were not considered white. They were considered non-white people, and they were treated like second-class citizens. Number 10 on the list of the 10 terms is white tears and fragility. White fragility is a term that was coined by author Robin DiAngelo. White fragility is a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable for white people, triggering a range of defensive moves. These moves include the outward display of emotion, such as anger, fear, and guilt, or behaviors such as argumentation, stress, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. Crying is also one of those behaviors. These behaviors, in turn, reinstate white racial equilibrium because these people, when uncomfortable, can always leave a conversation and not engage. 
Our largely segregated society is set up to insulate white people from racial discomfort. They can just get up and walk away from a situation that is challenging them on that. But people of color can't just get up and walk out of their skin. It's something that they always have to embrace and challenge because it's not something that we have the luxury and privilege of just dismissing. I should mention, by the way, that Robin D'Angelo is a white woman. This kind of negative reaction shuts down the conversation, and it doesn't allow for deeper, engaged dialogue or exposure. It also doesn't allow for self-awareness, because as a society, we're very quick to come into the defense of white people, upset that we call out something they said or did as racist. It's often more hurtful to be called a racist than to be on the receiving end of racism. There's often a social cost for people of color in bringing up race and racism or trying to address this. Um, it's why so often people of color, when facing incidences of microaggression or racism, just dismiss it. It's really difficult to engage in a conversation. Um, there's a really high social cost when you're that person always calling out race and racism. It's exhausting. Some people might argue that we're at a turning point when it comes to white fragility and white tears. We see white people being um, publicly shamed and called out for racist behavior and racist uh, speech, but that's not the same thing as the kind of white fragility that people of color feel and experience on a daily basis when they're trying to confront systemic institutional racism happening in their workplace, at the school, wherever it is. So yes, it is wonderful that we are having these kind of conversations um, about confronting racism when it's happening, but it's not the same thing. A few examples of public shaming does not mean that we're ending white fragility by any means. I haven't had the pleasure to read Robin D'Angelo's book. It is on the reading list. Uh, so is a book called White Tears, Brown Scars by Ruby Hamad uh, from Australia. Or residing in Australia. Uh, so hopefully I'll have the pleasure to read that and would love to... Maybe we could do a book club or something. <laughs> I'm sure my friends are, are sick of hearing me talk about all these different ideas. I know my husband is, but it would be cool to have a book club, to read it together and then maybe to discuss it. Let me know what you think. That's it. We've gotten to the end. Those were 10 anti-racism terms that I wanted to share with you all. I hope that you learned something new, um, whether you knew some of the terms already but didn't really understand its history, how it's being used, or if you learned some new terms that you had never heard of before. Uh, I hope that you're all coming away from this conversation with some new knowledge. Um, Please pass along this knowledge to your family, to your friends, impress them with your know-how and your wokeness. Woke is another term, but I... Okay, I'll give you one more term. So woke is a term that means that you are aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. But that's the last term I'll leave you with today. Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram, handle racism is nonsense. Racism, period, is, period, nonsense. Tag us in your woke posts. We love to engage with the community and can't wait to see all the different things that are going on. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with us today. I hope you guys have a fantastic rest of your day. Bye.